Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Eric Topol. But first, what's got your recent attention, Harlan? Yeah, I'm really excited about having Eric on the program. Uh, someone I admire a lot and has made such great contributions. So that's going to be a great conversation. How I want to come back to this issue about salt, I've mentioned it before on the program. There were a couple big trials that were done, one in particular that asked the question about whether or not salt substitute, that is, instead of using regular table salt, sodium chloride, they wondered whether or not, what if you gave people a salt that was made of potassium, potassium chloride instead? And would that reduction in sodium chloride, table salt, with the substitute, potassium chloride, have a beneficial effect on blood pressure or uh, cardiovascular outcomes. And, and, you know, this is the kind of thing I, I remember I mentioned it to you before. I remember my grandfather using salt substitute when I would sit at the table with him when I was a boy. And uh, yet, you know, not really talked about much. I, I don't know any doctors who prescribe it. Uh, at least it's not really part of the curriculum. And we, we don't actually we don't talk enough about nutrition and diet in medicine as it is. But But this is one area that I think has been neglected. This trial, the large trial, came out very positive. It was positively inclined towards salt substitute. It was good evidence. And then subsequently, there was another study that brought together all the published studies and again sort of reinforced this issue about the salt substitute. So in that context, there was also a study that came out just this week in one of the leading cardiology journals that took a look at the association of the frequency of adding salt to foods with patient outcomes with what happened to people after that. And, you know, I often bring up this UK biobank, this massive study that's being conducted in the United Kingdom, where over 500,000 people have come together, regular citizens have come together and have agreed to be tested in a wide variety of different ways and then followed over time. And, and this is just an ingenious study. Rory Collins, a, a friend of mine and someone who is another cardiologist who's done terrific work in clinical trials, and a wide range of other areas within cardiology is, is leading this. And it's become a massive resource for the entire world to take advantage of to, to demonstrate a whole range of different kinds of studies. So there was a group of investigators at uh, Tulane University and at Chan, the School of Public Health at, at Harvard, who got together, made use of this UK Biobank. And they, they did a study where they were able to pull together 176,000 people in the UK Biobank who were initially free of having any heart disease. And so they were looking at people with no heart disease. Now let's look at their habits and let's see whether any of these habits correspond to, to what happens to them subsequently. And the habit that they focused on in particular was this issue about adding salts to food. And they there's a question within the UK Biobank about whether you, you use table salt, regular table salt, always on your food, usually on your food, sometimes on your food, or never and rarely on your food. And then there are a couple of other questions about diets. There's actually something called the DASH diet that the NIH had had tested uh, early on in, in a NIH-funded study had tested uh, maybe 20 so years ago, which was using, you know, sort of the things that we think of as healthy today, a kind of a Mediterranean-type diet, low, lower on the salt, and it found very favorable outcomes and, and lower blood pressure, by the way, a, as part of those better outcomes but also better, fewer events. And uh, they found that, yeah, there was a gradient in the DASH diet too. The more that you were following that DASH diet, the lower your risk. But but on top of that, if you didn't add salt to, to your food in general, you got even a bigger boost out of it. So 
So this study is very interesting because I think we get kind of casual about diet. We get maybe a little nihilistic about it. And, and we think about salt a lot in the case of heart failure because those patients can be very salt sensitive and, and a salt load can push them over to, to requiring hospitalization or medical attention if they take too much. But this seems like in, in average people who don't have heart disease, even in that group, it may be that the amount of salt used it can can precipitate risk, can cause risk. Now, food studies are notoriously difficult to do, and there's a lot of behaviors that tend to track with the kind of things we look at in food. So, so there needs to be more study of this. Uh, of course, salt's been a subject of of a lot of different studies, but I think this may really get us looking at how people should be using salt, how much they should be using, and then of course knowing about its ability to sort of be in processed foods. Processed foods can carry a lot of salt. So there may be issues around that as well. So anyway, I thought this was a very interesting study. People may want to know about it. I, I think it just goes along with the general thing that we tell people, which is everything in moderation. But when it comes to salt, maybe moderation or a touch less might be good for your health. Yeah, I was sort of surprised. I mean, just looking at the study that, you know, how many people always add salt to their food. Um, I'm not one of them. Uh, I, I do use salt occasionally, but pretty rarely, honestly. But as you point out, we get salt because we add it. We also get uh, salt inside um, foods that we buy that are processed. And what you're telling me is that over decades of accumulated evidence, salt is not good for an awful lot of people. Uh, and so your grandfather decades ago may have been making um, some good decisions. Yeah, and I've always been a little skeptical of this. I kind of thought maybe there are people who are salt sensitive and others who aren't. Uh, and I'm kind of, my mind's opening again to the possibility that maybe this is an important risk factor for everyone. And we, we need to know more about it, but all things being equal, if you can get by with less salt, not a bad thing to do. Yeah, I like that. Hey, let's get on to Eric now. Dr. Eric Topol is Professor of Molecular Medicine and Executive Vice President of Scripps Research. He founded and directs the Scripps Research Translational Institute and is a practicing cardiologist. Dr. Topol's research has focused on individualizing healthcare using genomic and digital data, as well as artificial intelligence. He is one of the top 10 most cited researchers in medicine ever. In 2016, he was awarded a $207 million grant from the NIH to lead part of the Precision Medicine Initiative, a research effort launched under the Obama administration to individualize medicine. Prior to Scripps, Dr. Topol led the Cleveland Clinic to becoming the number one center in heart care. In 2002, he also founded the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine. He is the editor-in-chief of Medscape and a best-selling author. He has been elected to the National Academy of Medicine, has been recognized as the most influential physician leader in the U.S. by modern healthcare. He also writes an amazing Substack newsletter called Ground Truths. We'll link to it uh, in, in our description that gives frequent interpretations of new data and scientific publications. Dr. Topol received his bachelor's degree at the University of Virginia, his medical degree at the University of Rochester School of Medicine. I've known of you for decades now, uh, but came to know you best through your tireless efforts at spreading evidence and good information and pushing back at misinformation during the pandemic. So first, welcome to the podcast, but then what, what would you like our listeners to know right now that they may not be hearing enough of from the mainstream media? Well, as far as the pandemic, I, I think it's um, right now being kind of put aside prematurely. 
uh, there's still uh, lots of um, concern regarding potentially a whole new family of viruses out beyond Omicron, and also the chance that there's further evolution within Omicron to cause trouble. I mean, we're certainly seeing that in certain trouble spots around the world, uh, and China is in for some serious um, trouble right now. So um, for everybody just to th kind of think it's over, um, I think, unfortunately, uh, that's really premature. Not letting our guard down is really important. Uh, we know, for example, the, the, the importance of uh, reinfections. And if it's really true that 94% of Americans have been exposed to the virus, uh, that means there's uh, still a lot of uh, in-store chance for reinfections. And long COVID is perhaps the biggest thing that doesn't get enough emphasis. And you and your colleagues at Yale have been really leaders on that front. T tell me a little about, you know, you started college at the age of 15. Um, what did you think you were going to do when you were 15 years old? I think your father was an accountant. Um, uh, tell us a little about that and how maybe your family uh, illnesses even motivated you toward medicine. Yeah, well, uh, my father was a uh, insulin-dependent diabetic, and I watched him throughout his life um, have all the complications, every complication you can imagine of um, diabetes. He went blind at age 49, despite some of the early retinopathy treatments at the time. Um, so, you know, actually, I was thinking I'd become a, you know, endocrinologist or a diabetologist, and only when I went to UCSF did I get converted to cardiology. But um, yeah, my family's um, both sides, uh, a lot of premature deaths, you know, in the 50s, my mother died in her, in her, in her young 50s uh, of cancer. So I saw, all, you know, all the bad stuff of uh, what health ravages could do within my family. Um, so that certainly motivated me towards uh, a career in medicine, uh, as, you, as you mentioned. But as far as starting college uh, at a young age, you know, I was a misfit. You know, I was a total misfit. I, I remember uh, going in the registration lines at UVA, and they were handing out condoms. And I said, well, what is that? You know, so I, I didn't know what, I, I didn't know, you know, up or down. I, I you know. So, um, yeah, started, you know, being young you know, when, you're, when you're starting uh, at college, of course, has got pluses and minuses. I wanted to ask you this. So, you know, arguably, you're the leading cardiologist in the country. You know, the only Gene Brownwald, I think, sort of rivaled where you were at, at your peak. You're, you're still peaking, but in a different way. I mean, you, you pivoted away from the kind of work that you were doing, specifically within the field of cardiology, not that you don't retain expertise and contribution, which, which is, is substantial, but it's no longer your main platform. You, you, you broadened your platform and you, you went to digital. I mean, the creative destruction, the book that you came out with was really, uh, I, I think, paradigm shifting in many people's minds and then continued on that way to become a public figure, but also still substantively involved in the science in a wide range of areas, genomics and, and digital health. What was that like for you? I mean, here you are, you know, in a very prime position to continue your work within cardiology, and you pivot. You pivot from a position of strength. I mean, what was going through your mind at that time, and, and how did that happen? Uh, I guess the best way to say is I got bored. Um, <laughs> you know, there wasn't enough excitement in cardiology per se, um, and I could kind of see where the field was going, where 
uh, obviously genomics was starting to get um, more momentum in the mid 90s. Uh, and then all the digital uh, potential of our, not just our infrastructure, but the sensors and the data. And you started to become much more intrigued by these other um, opportunities because a lot of the clinical trials that you mentioned, Harlan, uh, so many that we were involved in were turning out negative. And when you start doing headbanging, you know, you go for a year or two on a clinical trial and then it's negative. You say, what are we doing here? So I kind of thought that there was other opportunities and the excitement uh, going on in, you know, for example, in cancer, um, in uh, immune uh, uh, diseases, system diseases, many other things that just seem to be more stimulating that could use the, the new tools that we were starting to see. What were the challenges in that? Well, I think you're pinpointing an, an important aspect is when you're delving in a new area uh, and it isn't your home base and you, you really got to get to know it. It's a lot of autodidactic work. So, you know, when I did the deep medicine book uh, about AI in medicine, it took three years. Uh, and during that time, you know, I, I did a lot of reading, a lot of research. I mean, that was two years of work. But I also, when I when I put the book together as a draft, I sent it to over 20 AI experts around the world, and they became friends, and I got to learn from them. So each time, that's the same kind of thing I did, you know, with genomics and, I mean, digital medicine. You know, there was no there was no digital medicine, so that one was easy. <laughs> I, th I think the AI one was the most challenging because I, I didn't have any grounding as in computer science. I, I did have in genetics uh, in college, but and getting back to that, but the AI was formidable. You, you had the benefit of being way ahead of the curve, as you've just described, and sort of studying this space and then following it really close and even start, you know, even the startup, I think it was called Western Wireless or something that you have on the West Coast. Um, are you surprised by how slow the technology is rolling out? How fast it is? Tell us what your impressions are now looking back at what you wrote. And, and I'll give one quick follow-up question. I'm in radiology and I wrote a piece six and a half years ago about the impact of AI and radiology and I said, it's not gonna happen quickly. And I think I overstated that because it's happening much slower than I expected in terms of its impact on the field. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, that was prescient, uh, Howie. I think the problem we have is uh, the medicine, our community is really kind of ossified, very resistant to change. Um, and in order for that change to occur, you know, many things have to happen. One of them is uh, compelling evidence uh, that is just overwhelming that you just can't practice medicine the same way as you used to. Uh, and so, for example, with radiology, you know, there's been certainly many algorithms of interpretation. Machine eyes are amazing, but they are not uh, published. You know, they're not transparent. They're kind of in the bowels of proprietary data in the, in the FDA review retrospective. You know, they're not what you call kind of uh, groundbreaking results that would change how radiologists necessarily would practice. But then the digital thing is even much bigger. But the digital thing is um, it's been well over 15 years now. When I came out to Scripps, um, we started... Uh, really, I think the first academic digital medicine um, program, and 15 years later, what do we have to show for it? Not much, because you know it took a pandemic just to accept that telemedicine existed, 
and there's lots of reluctance to accept you know that we see certain elements of acceptance but gradually um it's it's been a very slow moving process so i i heard from uh Many folks, because I, who've run, you know, people who work with you, because every once in a while I'll ask about that. I'm like, how does Eric keep up that volume of of Twitter? And does he have a team of people? Is he like, and how does he do in those? Uh, you know, his visualizations are terrific, and all this. You know, everyone, time after time, people, t- he does it himself. He actually, you know, does the work and does it himself. Tell us a little bit about your your own process. I mean, how given how busy you are and everything you're doing, I mean, that you're able to devote yourself to that kind of communication and do it so well? I mean, the visualizations with your tweets, for example, I mean, you, you always write on. Uh, tell me about, a little bit about your process. How did you get that done? Well, first of all, the, the staff uh, is me. <laughs> You're looking at <laughs> the staff. Um, so, over, you know, it's 13 years, over 40,000. I don't remember, you know, the current number of, of tweet Twitter posts. Um, but I try to take uh, each one, you know, uh, uh, seriously as what can it transmit. And, um, you know, I think it's, I, I wish, uh, I know both of you are active, but I wish all of us would become much more, whether it's Twitter, which has uh, got some issues at the moment, uh, whether it's Mastodon or Post, whatever, but we have to stand up to all the, the mis and disinformation and all the shoddy stuff that's out there. And if we don't do it, you know, how's it going to be titrated? Um, so, I think that's the problem. I, I, I do think it's worth the priority of time. Yes, Harlan, you're absolutely right. It does take some time. But, you know, as you get, as both of you know, as you do it more and more, it takes less time. You just get very efficient and you just, you know, uh, if you're going to read something anyway, all you're doing is basically sharing it. Um, yeah, I just love, I mean, even you you highlight the pieces, you know, you really, I mean, you, you know, you make it easy to extract the information. Anyway, I, I much appreciated from your readers, I'll just say. You know, oh, they're very kind on my. Thank you. I mean, I I now wonder about all the investment of time put into Twitter if it if it really it deteriorates as it looks like it is at the moment. But hopefully, I'm I'm optimistic. I'm always thinking something will turn that around. We'll see. Yeah, I I want to go back to what you said with social media because the last few weeks have been frustrating. Um, and I am seeing a flood of, of sort of misinformation, purposeful misinformation propagating itself. And, I, you know, I take a different tack from you and, and Harlan. I'll just continue to sort of fight in the trenches uh, against this at times. But it's becoming almost impossible. And I worry about it. And you're on post already. And I think you're on Mastodon already. And, and so am I. Um, what? What what do we do? Do we keep fighting the good fight on Twitter no matter what happens? Um, what's your what are you thinking specifically about how you're going to manage social media? I, I'm kind of thinking this parallels to uh, terrorists, you know, where you don't let that you don't let them get you to to seed your space to you, you got to ante up. I, I really think it's important um, that we don't just go off to you know, sites with minimal reach uh, where, you know, people are not spreading misinformation. They don't actually need us as much. Uh, Twitter, I think it's, Twitter is, is unfortunately, uh, because of its long-term base, um, it has extraordinary reach. And if we just give up, 
uh, that's unfortunate. So I'm going to fight it out. Um, I love what you do, Howie, where you take them all on. You, you're not afraid of anybody. True. You'll go true. after Elon. You'll go after. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I think that's great. You know, it isn't fun to have the pile on because they're organized, as you well know. They're organized and, you know, they they have some ringleader that says go after, you know, this person or that person. You know, who yeah. wants that to kind of ruin your I, day? Yeah. And the bottom. No, but I, I do bottom. want to, uh, one, one quick fo- follow-up to that. You know, Alex Berenson is now back on. He is very bright. A lot of what he reports is database, but his conclusions are sort of off the rails. But he will come after you. And in the last 10 days, he has been basically lobbying, I think, the Cleveland Clinic or maybe it's University Hospital in Cleveland to fire an emergency medicine physician there. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally lobbying him on Twitter. So it is getting intimidating. And I don't push back against Alex anymore because I don't want to draw bad attention to Yale just because I'm upset at Alex Berenson. But it is a little frightening. (laughs) It doesn't stop you on the podcast, though, does it? No, no, no. We talk about it. That's true. Yeah, well, you know, he he has been a really bad actor. But, you know, interestingly, I knew him really well when he worked at the New York Times. Yeah, he, he was, was good on really, the Viax. He was good on the Viax case. Yeah, right? but he was a first-rate journalist. I mean, I got to know him. I, 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 I'm still shocked at you know, he he became yeah. obviously a darling for Fox News and you know the anti-vaccine, uh, and he certainly deserved to be taken off Twitter for the things he was writing about. Um, but yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. You know, now I mean, the only one left out there is Alex Jones. I mean, you're going to bring him back. I mean, this is just amazing, really. I wanted to ask you this. You you wrote about almost a decade ago, 2015, I guess. You know, the patient will see you now. I, I thought, by the way, amazing title, talking about the democratization of medicine, the the what I think will be an inevitable turn of medicine toward the patient. But even over the time since you wrote that book, uh, slow progress, you know, lots of resistance. People, you know, this paternalism in medicine, the idea that we're telling people what to do, and that we're also filtering the information that people can see and, and use, you know, persists till today. Do, do you, what do you think is going to be the turning point here that's going to lead us into a new direction? I mean, the direction that you talked about almost a decade ago, I, I, it's there. I know it's going to be there, but I don't know when. Well, I know you've championed, I think, very much similar path that uh, patients should own their data. Um, and this is, in a digital world, this is an inevitability. Uh, the pr- question is when, not yeah. if. Yeah. And yeah. it may take decades to get to this natural um, uh, conclusion that uh, it's not right for doctors to think they own the record just because they, you know, did the notes or, you know, that it's their um, their work product. It's the patients. So um, that's kind of the the real basis. The core problem is the unwillingness. Even still today, most physicians don't want to share their their notes uh, with patients for ridiculous reasons. Uh, but this continues. Uh, there's been little. Uh, you know, one thing going back to the AI and digital, we're seeing a lot more, as you know, coaching. Um, and we're seeing people being able to use their, capture their own data and get algorithmic support. So that will arm patients more, but they, they are missing getting their data and the portals, uh, you know, largely are totally inadequate. Yeah, I think, the, I think the pandemic may have pushed things forward, but still not fast enough progress, I, I right. think. Right. That's terrible. 
So uh, let me. We're getting toward the end, so I wanted to ask you one final question, just as a a, a parting shot for the listeners. I, and it's about mentorship. And I, I was just wondering today, given all the exciting things that you're seeing ahead, I mean, there's no one who sees the future, I think, as well as you do. When you see medical students and they come and say to you, you know, hey, I'm looking at all these exciting things going on, and and I'm trying to decide where to go with my career now. What what's the advice you give to the, to those young students now about about how they should position themselves for the careers that will last the next 50 years? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's really good to uh, have particular emphasis, if possible, um, whether in, in data science and analytics, uh, you know, computer science, AI. I think this area is just going to be the most transformative that we've ever seen. And so for people who at least have a, a willingness to delve into that, they don't have to necessarily get a degree or go too deep, but just that familiarity. It isn't the part uh, a part of medical curriculum now. It should be for sure. Uh, but we, we need to groom that uh, and you know really do nurture that, that field uh, so we're not left behind as we currently are uh, relatively. So I hope that area will wind up being one that is really um, extremely popular. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I just want to—I I want to take the moment to thank you, giving us your time, um, and and really the contributions that you have made to society, to medicine, to the social media community cannot be measured. If people are not following you, they should be following you. And just for our listeners, Twitter handle for you is at Eric Topol, T-O-P-O-L, um, and uh, you know we're just so fortunate to have you as a colleague and a friend. Yeah, I well, pr appreciate it, Eric. Like I said, appreciate you, appreciate you taking the time with us today. Well, thanks. It's been a joy to join you. And just that I would make a footnote, um, what you've been doing at Yale throughout the pandemic, no less before and after, but in the pandemic has been extraordinary. I don't know of an institution that's made more, uh, you know, critical contributions, uh, including both of you, but it's been great to watch. And I've noted that in social media from time to time, few institutions have surpassed the type of pan uh you know efforts that you've done so thanks a lot yeah, and you know we're not done i mean with this long COVID and all, all yeah. this stuff and the work great work that kiko's doing and others it's really it's terrific yep. yeah and look what happened with med um archives preprint yeah. oh yeah, man and I, by the way we should, I, and tip of a hat to you you and i wrote early pieces together about that again credit to you for helping with with that too thanks no well look that turned out to be an amazing important uh platform thank, thank you, you. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Right. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Howie, that was a terrific interview. So let's yeah, let's turn awesome. to you. What's on your mind this week? Yeah, so, I, you know, you and I are uh, temperamentally a little different. I'm really easily triggered by some things. Uh, I can also be calmed down, and you're one of the people that can calm me down about stuff. So I'm going to bring this to you and ask you your thoughts. Uh, the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, posted an interesting table on LinkedIn this weekend. He stated that, you know, GLP-1 uh, agonists, these are the, the glucagon-like uh, peptide 1 receptor agonists that we talked about with Anya Yastrobov uh, with regard to obesity. He pointed out that that class of drugs now is the largest within the peptide group. Total annual sales, $17 billion. Okay, so that's all interesting. But what caused me to bring this up and what, what triggered me, so to speak, was a seemingly innocuous reply to his post that read as follows. 
Type 2 diabetes can easily be treated without drugs but with lifestyle change. Reduce sugar and start physical activity to express GLUT4. So I'm going to set aside for, for the moment a discussion of GLUT4. Maybe we'll get someone to talk about it, but that's a glucose transmitter, transporter rather, that um, you know helps mitigate hyperglycemia in people who exercise a lot. So put that aside. But Diabetes is a disease that has many factors influencing its development, persistence, and worsening. And here I'm talking about type 2 diabetes. It may be the case that there are many, many cases of diabetes that could be managed by reducing sugar intake and increasing exercise, but it is condescending to me to say that it is easy. So I went back and looked at this, this person's background, the one who posted this, and lo and behold, they're a relatively young PhD pharmaceutical company executive, and I wanted to get your take on it because I, I, I'm wondering if I'm being overly harsh. I did not reply to him on LinkedIn. I decided that this is a, a war that I'll fight on a different day, but <laughs> curious of your thoughts. Well, look, Howie, I think given all the things going on in the world, you might want to reserve your ire for another target. This person's one, they're not wrong, uh, you know, that you actually can roll back type 2 diabetes with marked behavioral changes. If the person suggests it's easy, they are de they're dead wrong on that. I mean, there's nothing easy about it. And what we've seen is that the ability for people to maintain the kind of drastic behavioral changes that lead to marked reductions in weight, for example, and the ability to kind of roll back this, you know, and whether it's a ketone approach with low carbs or whether it's just low caloric approach. I mean, it, these things can work in some people temporarily. But the ability to persist with this over time is is almost impossible for most people. That, that that's not to say we shouldn't encourage people if they want to try or or try to, you know, suggest. I don't want to suggest to anyone that they shouldn't try those behavioral approaches. And maybe for some people they can live with them for their lives. But we know that for many people this is difficult. And I think the important thing, and this is a message that Anya, when she was on our program, was trying to get across, was. You know, don't blame the victims here. You know, obesity is a disease, and, and we need to be really careful about suggesting it's a lack of willpower or an inability to, to do the right thing that, that, that saddles people with these, with these health problems. But rather, we need to recognize that in the context of our current society that, that you know, we have a problem with obesity, and it's a disease problem. And now there are lots of strategies that, that seemingly can help over the long run. Some are, are required drugs some even interventions like surgery. And, and that doesn't mean we should stop with behavioral approaches as well, but it seems like a multi-modal approach, a multi-dimensional you know, approach is going to be the best way. But, but getting back to your point, look, this person may have been too flip. It's, it's a very hard problem for most people, and we really need to be sure that we're conveying respect, honoring them, and not blaming them or suggesting it's any weakness in their character as a result that results in this. It ties back to what you said in the opening with salt, right? I mean, like, it's one thing to say to people, less salt is probably better than more salt, but I'm not sure that you're going to be able to get patients to change your behavior when you take absolutist views to tell them that you can easily not have to be treated with drugs if you just listen to me and do exactly what I say. Yeah, I well, this gets also to I think the thing that Eric is also writing about around the paternalism of our of our medical care system and the idea that hey, you know, if you if you're not compliant, if you don't do what I tell you, you know, instead of trying to understand the circumstances of people's lives, it can make it very difficult to to follow certain regimens. And the fact that the, these regimens continue to fail 
should tell us something. Again, you know, Anya's helped to teach me about the thinking about obesity like I think about hypertension, which is I can encourage people for healthier diets and exercise and try to see if we can take a few points of blood pressure off. But in the end, you know, we need to treat it. You know, we need to get people's blood pressure down and that's what, what, what helps them. And again, it takes people also being interested in being treated and forming that partnership with our patients so that, you know, they understand what's at stake and they can make choices. But, but to suggest any of this is easy or, or that, you know, trivial uh, is a big mistake. And if, you're, if that's what is inflaming you, I would say that's justified. But I'll still come back to you and say in today's world, with the, the, you've got ample, <laughs> ample other things, I think, that should get your attention that may, may be uh, equally important. Only just saying this person, yeah, this is what we need to fight against because this is a prevalent belief, which is that this is just a matter of telling people, urging them on, telling them what to do, having them modify their behaviors, Decades and decades and decades of failure, I think, has shown us that's not going to be the right approach. It's just not. Yeah. Shaming, shaming people is just not a solution. I don't think we're ever going to get anywhere in medicine if shaming is part of our strategy. Or, or, or making them feel just inadequate because of it's shaming, maybe the same thing. You know, it's a, that inadequacy. They shouldn't feel like they've failed. We failed them exactly. if we haven't been able to work with them to find a strategy that works. My point. Yep. Yeah, okay. So, that, okay, you're justified. <laughs> You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. How did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter for now. <laughs> for now. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-L. And actually, Eric's helped me think about this a little differently, about saying, yeah, we should ante up and, and really push for Me these. too. I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. And I'm going to stay there as long as I can. Uh, you can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu backslash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are amazing. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.